John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, in your analog Bible, as we like to refer to it, or on your device, follow along uh, so that the Holy Spirit can minister to you personally through the Word, show you things that I'm going to miss, but that you need to hear. The topic there, the Word who was there in the beginning came to earth to show us what God is like. The title of our message, God's beginning to look a lot like Jesus. Get it? Kind of like a double thing going on there. I'm, I'm really sensitive to this now because there was a review on Google <laughs> that said the, the church is great, but the pastor's jokes aren't funny. No, I'm sorry. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I already knew that, but anyway. I did the review. Uh, Father, thank you so much for our time together this morning. I pray that you would bless it. As I already indicated, Lord, I pray that you would speak to me and to everyone here separately from what is being said from the pulpit in a deep personal way of application, mostly that we would understand just how very much you love us and how very much uh, you want to, us to walk in grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit and that you are doing a work in us that you will bring to completion, uh, regardless of our interference at some time. One day you're gonna present us faultless before the Father and uh, without spot and blameless, Lord. We thank you for that and for your work in our life. Uh, we pray that as we begin this study in the Gospel of John, Lord, you give us insight and wisdom that we wouldn't miss anything that needs to be said. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Call me Ishmael. You at once recognize the first sentence of Moby Dick. How about these famous literary first sentences? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, that's easy. This one's a little bit harder, but I think you'll get it. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice, yes. Well, I once watched all six hours of that at once not something I'm proud of, but anyway. I submit to you that the most significant opening words ever written in the history of mankind are, in the beginning, God. Now you instantly recognize those as the opening words of the book of Genesis. It should therefore come as a surprise that the apostle John opened his gospel using those sacred words. Shockingly, John added to the words. He said, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He explains that God was not alone when the world was created. Someone else was there with God, a person called the Word. He claims this person is equal with God. And John will go on to explain in verse 14 that this person who was with God and is equal to God came from heaven to earth as a man. He'll say the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If the first line is a hook, John has us hook, line, and sinker, as we say. I'll organize my comments around two points derived from the text. Number one, the word gives you life. And number two, the word gives you light. Let's look at our life in verses one through four. 93% of what John records does not occur in any of the other Gospels. Ten chapters are devoted to describing one week of Jesus' ministry. One-third of the verses in the book cover a single 24-hour period 
in the life of Jesus. D.A. Carson writes, unique to the Gospel of John is all of the material in chapters two, three, and four, including his miraculous transformation of water into wine, his dialogue with Nicodemus, and his ministry in Samaria. Further, the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus' frequent visits to Jerusalem, his extended dialogues or discourses in the temple and in various synagogues, not to mention much of his private instruction to his disciples are all exclusive to the fourth gospel. John informs us why the Holy Spirit inf uh, inspired him to put quill to parchment. He says in chapter 20, towards the end of the book, it is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Do you have life in his name? Yes, you say? Well, then the Gospel of John will give you a greater appreciation for eternal life, both now and forever. It will renew you, it will refresh you, it will restore you as you see the, the life of Jesus in this very unique portrayal that John has. A lot of times we fill in the blanks of Jesus' life and John says, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff no one else is going to tell you. Maybe because the other gospels had already been written uh, and John didn't want to repeat them, but a very, very unique gospel and it should encourage and, and excite us. No, you say, I don't have life in his name. This inspired account is, is written so that you will come to Jesus Christ. And so one of the things I want our church to be praying for is that folks would come, uh, friends of yours, family members, just people from the outside uh, who don't know Jesus and who this word will affect uh, in, in this environment with, with us coming on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and all, that, that they would come to the church and hear about Jesus and be saved. And so verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word was God. If I said, the force be with you, odds are you'd know I was referring to the well-known metaphysical power certain individuals channel in the Star Wars universe. Word was a well-known religious concept to both Gentiles and Jews. It wasn't like the force, but it was like uh, that in the sense that it was not an unknown concept. Uh, Learned men used it to try to describe creative spiritual power. Gentiles refer to the word as an impersonal power that created and controlled the universe. Jews thought of the word as the creative power of Yahweh, the one true God. Psalm 33 verse 9, for example, says that at creation, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And so they saw God using the word, speaking the word in order to create. John explains that the word is not a power of God, but another person who is God. And as much as we're able, we need to think how revolutionary and, uh, and uh, controversial John's words, especially these opening five verses, would be to a first century Jew. Now, having said that, I wanna tell you that we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. No use waiting to get there. Uh, we are Trinitarian. One definition of Trinitarian beliefs goes like this. The Bible teaches that there is one eternal God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the only God that exists. However, within the nature of this one God are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are co-equal 
and co-eternal. They, uh, they are also indistinct, are distinguishable or distinct from one another. These three distinct persons are the one God. Everything that is true about God is true about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All attempts to explain the Trinity with some analogy miserably fail. Maybe you've heard it compared to water. You know, you know, water can be ice and water, and it can be steam or an egg. You know, the shell, the yolk, and the whatever the other, the white. Uh, you know, but none of those are good. None of those are any good. The truth is, the Bible teaches unequivocally that God is one and three. One person, three natures, and uh, there's no way to totally understand that, but it is the teaching of the word. Apologist Don Stewart writes, it is best to admit that the Trinity has no analogy which we can compare it. It's a lot to wrap our finite minds around, and so uh, from the beginning, I'm going to tell you there may be times when you hear me misspeak about the Trinity or seem to really struggle so that I don't misspeak. No worries, I assure you that we are orthodox even though I get tongue-tied sometimes. You don't want to say something wrong, but it's really difficult to talk about the Trinity and not kind of get far afield. And so, uh, you know, one God, three persons in one God uh, in a way that we don't understand. Now, the fact that God, who is one, is more than one, is already discoverable in the word Moses chose for God. The word for God in the very first verse of the Bible is Elohim. In fact, the first two words are Bereshith Elohim, in the beginning God. Scholars agree that Elohim is a plural term that is being used to describe an individual. God is one, but more than one. Here are two more quick things for your consideration. In verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit, another person who is God, and in Genesis 2.26, God will refer to himself plurally, saying out loud, let us make man in our image. The first verses of the Bible not be enough, uh, may not be enough to establish the Trinity, but they are sufficient to suggest that there was more than one person at creation, and John is going to identify that second person. And so he's drawing out from what was already there something that the Jews did not believe that God was one but more than one. The choice of the word was communicates that the word preexisted. Since he was already there in the beginning, he was there before creation, he was not created, he is eternal. Uh, he was both creator and, uh, the, uh, you know, um, he couldn't be created if he was the creator, right? With is another loaded word. Leon Morris said, we should understand from the preposition with the two ideas of accompaniment and relationship. Not only did the word exist in the beginning, but he existed in the closest possible connection with the Father. The word was equal with Yahweh. And then John drops a bomb. He says, and the word was God. Another quote I jotted down, John is not merely saying that there is something divine about the word. He is affirming that he is God and doing so emphatically. The Jews thought the word was a power that Yahweh possessed. It was not a person to them, let alone a person who was God. By the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on your door and interrupt your yard work, uh, they have their own version of the Bible, the New World Translation. In it, the opening lines of the Gospel of John read, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Not God, a God who God created. You don't need to know Greek grammar or see existing manuscripts to know and show that this is false. As I already indicated, the Word cannot be both created and the Creator. You know, the, the Creator, it can't be created. And so it's, it's ridiculous in context. And so why call this second person the Word? Now, you and I know it's Jesus. John's going to introduce him later on in the book. But why call him the Word so many times? Well, in just a few verses, we will read, No one has ever seen God. The only Son, who is truly God and is closest to the Father, has shown us what God is like. In the book of Hebrews, the writer there says, God spoke in a lot of different ways in the past, but now he's speaking to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Words reveal your unseen thoughts. The Word reveals the unseen God. And so it's a title of Jesus talking about one of his ministries. One of his ministries is to show you what God looks like. Jesus will later tell his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's very important, uh, simple point, but very important. If you want to know the nature of God, you look at Jesus. And so anything that God uh you know, gets blamed for in our world today. There's a, there's a divide in people's minds, sometimes even Christians, that God is kind of a crotchety old man, can't wait to throw hurricanes and tragedies our way, but Jesus is shielding us from that. Jesus said, yeah, you got that all wrong. The God of the Old Testament is me, and I'm here to show you what God is like. And, and maybe it's because it's so radical to see God in human flesh and to realize that this is God, not our, I mean, look at the world religions and mythologies, you see what kind of God men create. They're all angry. They're the worst parts of us, not the best parts. And so uh, he is the word in the sense that he is revealing God to us. Jesus says what? I'm the alpha and the omega, which are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And he's basically saying everything that can be said about God is me. That whole alphabet is me. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. The word was there eternally with God and he created the world as an equal. Difficult for non-Jews to comprehend the explosive nature of these declarations. Jews consider this polytheism, the worship of many gods. Jews daily repeat the Shema, which was their essential confession of faith. You know it from Deuteronomy ch uh, chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is translation of Jehovah, Elohim, Jehovah. The scripture used to argue against plurality uses that same plural term, Elohim. And so I admit this is a head scratcher until it is revealed. Uh, you know, trying to figure out why the use of the word Elohim, let us create man in our image, Jehovah is one, but more than one. This is hard. And that's why as the Bible progresses, we get more and more information about the nature of God until through the New Testament, we learn a lot about the triunity of God, the triune God. Verse three, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So he cannot be made by God. He is God who made everything. And only God can create from nothing. That's what I love so much about the Big Bang. 
It came from nothing. And, and it presupposes God. I guess they say matter was eternal, but that's stupid. The word is not the force. It's not the power Yahweh possessed to create. The word is himself the creator with Yahweh. John was not adding anything to Genesis account. He had always indicated that it, it rather had always indicated that there was more than one person. It just didn't give the details. The learned Jews missed something that was right there in the verse. And so in order to uh, deal with it, they, they taught things from that verse that weren't there. Let's talk about that issue for a moment in a personal application. We all need to acknowledge that we can miss things in the Bible even when they are clearly stated. And I'm not just talking about, oh, I've never seen that before, that's a great insight, but sometimes our, you know, being raised in a certain tradition, we actually misinterpret the Bible and you'd be surprised how hard it is for people who have misinterpreted the Bible in some uh, way to get on board with what the Bible actually says when it's shown to them. I'll give you an example using spiritual gifts on both ends of the spectrum. We've shown hyper-Pentecostals in the Bible where the Apostle Paul clearly states, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. Paul who earlier said, hey, I, I wish you spoke in tongues, all of you, and I speak in tongues more than any of you, is giving some correction to the wayward church in Corinth about the exercise of the gift of tongues. And he says, look, one thing you guys need to remember and realize, when a person speaks with an utterance in tongues, they are speaking to God. God is not speaking through them. I shared this at a Bible study one time in the San Bernardino Mountains in Lake Arrowhead, and one guy almost killed me. He had grown up in a Pentecostal church his whole life, and he, he didn't care. I'm serious, it got pretty heated. He, he didn't care about the words at all because he, because he had seen this week after week after week after week in his church experience since he was a toddler, that people would speak in tongues, and then they would give an impression or an interpretation that was a word from God to the congregation. You need to adjust when you come to something like that and say, hey, I was wrong. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those we call cessationists. They believe that certain gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in the New Testament have ceased to exist, tongues being one of them in prophecy. The same Apostle Paul said, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. And then he goes on to talk. And you realize that this is given in the middle of like three chapters of how to properly exercise all of the spiritual gifts with no talk that they are going any place after the first century. And yet cessationists dig in. They, uh, if you even think that it might be okay to speak in tongues, then you're a heretic uh, and you shouldn't, you're probably not a real Christian. And it's, again, it is a tradition. It, it can't be defended, not really from the Bible. Just because we keep hearing something, it doesn't make it true. We must always let the text speak in its context. And so, uh, you know, be flexible. Chuck Smith used to say what? Blessed are the flexible, for they will not be broken. And so be flexible about these things. We're not talking about essential doctrines, obviously, like the Trinity. Uh, we're talking about our interpretation of other things. And we need to be open to really, you know, looking at what, what do the words say and what do they really mean? And so back to John in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
in the word was life means he gave life to creation, especially to Adam and Eve, breathing into Adam and then creating Eve from Adam's side. I love to talk about Adam's side. I don't know what it is. It's because it's only been a few years ago I kind of came to this realization. You know, most people, they talk about you being, uh, women being created from Adam's rib, right? Uh, and they say, you know, Adam had one less rib and all of this kind of stuff. But the Bible says it was his side. The word for rib is side. It's a much bigger portion than just a rib. God didn't do microsurgery and just reach in and pull a rib out. He took part of Adam's side. That's why Adam, when he looks at Eve, says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He, she, he was like a, 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 he looked down, his side was gone. We don't like that idea because we think, well, who wants to go around deformed? Uh, but it wasn't. You know, it was like, it was a brilliant thing. It was a wonderful thing. And for all of Adam's life, he, he bore the marks of God's surgery so that he could create the beautiful woman that was his mate. The light God gave our original parents might have caused them to be radiant. God is light. We're told he dwells in unapproachable light in 1 Timothy. The Psalms mention that God covers himself in light. Psalm 50 verse 2 says, from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Someone who has God's life has his light. And we know that we will be raised from the dead or raptured in a glorious body in the future. If it is anything like Jesus' resurrection body, we too will shine. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shone in his glory. Remember the disciples went up there with him and all of a sudden he was there with Moses and Elijah and he was shining brightly in his glory. You recall also that whenever Moses met with God, he would return with an afterglow. He would be glowing from his meetings with God. That glow would fade because it was temporary. Paul the apostle tells us in the New Testament, in the future, we will have a permanent glow. And I don't see any reason to not think of it as being actually radiant. A messianic resource said this, resource said this, there are traditions from both Jewish and Christian sources that teach that before the fall, the skin of Adam and Eve was luminous. In other words, they were covered by divine light and they would glow, so to speak. Another commentator wrote, I believe before the fall of man that Adam and Eve also glowed with the glory of God through their mortal flesh, just like Moses. When they sinned, the glory was removed and they knew that they were naked. Now they could obviously see that they were physically naked before, nothing changed there. There's the possibility that God's glory was removed and they shone no more. They could see they were naked, that is without the glory of God encompassing them. Now, this is a minor point, but it's interesting. I, I, I think it's fascinating because it does answer some questions. You know, what, what does it mean that they, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed? Uh, they'd been naked the whole time. It's because something else was lost. Something, and that something would be the glory of God in their lives because they had sinned against God. And you see that, uh, that God is light and those who uh, are, are his also reflect that light. Now, the us of let us make man in our image did great, but it didn't last. Satan, the sin-sick sin serpent, tempted our parents. Their sin affected all life and light, plunging them in creation into spiritual death and darkness. Not to worry, here light comes to save the day. In verse 5, have you ever experienced complete darkness? There's places in, you know, you go where they make it totally dark. 
Boyden Cavern up here is one. And uh, we were on the tour, and one of the highlights of the tour is the, the guide takes you into this one area, and they turn off their flashlight, and you are in absolute pitch darkness. You know when you say you can't see the hand in front of your head or in front of your eyes? It, unless you're on the tour with the family that has the kid who has the light-up tennis shoes. And then he's over there going like this. <laughs> there was still too much light to wring his neck. And so I just... It just those parents, parents, please, please parent your children. Nobody likes that. Anyway, so I've never experienced complete darkness. I feel, cho I feel cheated is the word. Yes, that's right. By a, anyway, uh, John 1.5, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. It must have been terrifying for Adam and Eve to lose the light of God and instantly be plunged into spiritual darkness. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten caught doing something terrible? I don't want to make too much fun of that. I'm not going to give you an example in my life. There's too many. But um, you ever, I mean, you know, like, like, hey, you're under arrest or, or all you're doing something, oh, you know, your mom or your dad catches you and you're just totally like freaked out and cold all over and, you, you know, you've been discovered and there's no hope for you. Imagine if you're Adam and Eve. Everything's going swimmingly, as we like to say. And you're eating oranges and grapefruit and, you know, not pluots because that's a, a, a thing that we created here, but you're eating all these different things. And then you end up eating the, what we think is a fig, but that's just our opinion. And the next thing you know, ah, your name, where'd that luminosity go? Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What? Is that God we hear in the garden? What are you doing? We're hiding behind fig trees, fig leaves. I mean, it was terrifying. It was awful. I don't think we can understand it. It was enough to make them hide from a gracious God who put up with that sin and even they're deceiving each other and lying to him about it. How are we to understand darkness? I mean, that's a big, you know, if I say we're in the dark, everybody will have a different idea. Well, Genesis can help us get a handle on it. The very next account in Genesis after the fall of man is the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Some time passes, obviously, because Adam and Eve have to have their children. But the next account that's of value is this murder. Not too many generations later, fallen angels married and mated with human women. It produced a race of giants called Nephilim. The corruption of human DNA became so widespread that God destroyed everyone on the earth with the global flood. Everyone except for eight souls, Noah and his family, and we're told about Noah that he was perfect in his generations. Now, that could obviously mean that he was well-behaved, he was a righteous man, he served the Lord, but it can also mean that were generations what issued forth from him, generations of people, starting with his sons, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's actually describing or could be describing regular, perfect human DNA. And so God wiped everybody else out because of the corruption of DNA. And why would Satan want to corrupt human DNA? To keep the Savior from coming, obviously. That was his whole plan from the beginning. And God said, no, we're going to do this ridiculous project where we build this gigantic boat 
and have all these animals on it. Gino taught on this uh, last Wednesday, two Wednesdays ago. It's worth listening to. It's fantastic. Uh, and, and through that, he preserves the human race. It, and they start over. But not long after that comes the Tower of Babel. Mankind starts building a ziggurat, which is a tower from which to worship the stars and the planets. These episodes are the result of the fall in the garden. They are indicative of spiritual darkness. Mankind has a heart of darkness. We see the horror that ensues. If I said the world is a dark place, you'd know what I mean and probably agree with me. Unless you are Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy then you'd argue with me because you don't know metaphors and you say, well, no, there's lights. Anyway, can't help myself. I'm going to give myself a review. I really am. <laughs> Pastor tries really, really hard, but, but still it's not funny. Light defeats darkness. Of course, the ratio of light to darkness matters. If I light a stick match in Boyden Cavern, the light will prevail for only a limited area. A flashlight beam will show me more. Do they still do searchlights? Have you guys, is there, you know, where they bring those big trailers from World War II that used to search for uh, airplanes overhead, enemy aircraft? We had a guy in San Bernardino, Chester Stumpf was his name. We called him Stumpy. He's a good guy. And he used to bring those things to premieres and, you know, the lights are going like that. Don't look into those. You don't even need to be told not to look into those. Not only are you blinded, your head is burned off. I mean, it's, it's terrible. I mean, they, but so if you brought one, if you dropped one of those things into Boyden Cavern, it would probably fill every corner. It would require a pretty awesome light to overcome the darkness in every corner of creation. Good thing the word is light of immeasurable magnitude. Satan is called the ruler of this world and his forces are called the rulers of the darkness of this age. The, world, the word rather came into the world he created to shine in that darkness. In verses 7, 8, and 9, John will tell us that the word was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. When it says the darkness did not comprehend it, the International Standard Version reads, the darkness has never put it out, and the Message Version says it could not be put out. We just finished 34 weeks in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And one thing you might say about it to summarize it is that light prevailed over darkness. So much so that in eternity, there is no physical or spiritual darkness. Only day, never night, never wrong, only right. I may have to change my mind. Earlier I said that the opening words of Genesis were the most significant opening words ever written in the history of mankind. John 1, 1, got to be right up there. We are calling this series, He Loved Me, He Loves Me Lots. The word Jesus is God who loved you before the creation of the world. And the word Jesus is God in human flesh who loves you now and is making you into a new creature before he restores creation. You and I, Paul the Apostle said, are an epistle of Jesus Christ. We are a letter Jesus is writing to anyone who can read us. Uh, it's an analogy, obviously, you know, and so we think of ourselves as letters. Well, what are the opening words of my letter to the world so far? Uh, what are yours? If you, it, this would be a great exercise in your devotions. It, it's a lot, everybody writes. We all write bad poetry from time to time. Uh, and so, you know, get a pen and pen, pencil and say, how, do, how would I start 
the story of my life if I had to write it right now. And if it's something that you're not too excited about, uh, until the Lord comes, there's time for editing or even a complete rewrite. And so if that's necessary, do it. Let the Lord help you with it. Let his Holy Spirit be the stylus upon your heart and my heart so that we would be communicating to this lost and dying dark world uh, that is in so much trouble that Jesus is in fact God. And you know what, all the, all the terrible things that we talk about happening in the world and all the fear and fear mongering, it really still comes down to this. People need to get saved. We're dealing with people who are blinded by Satan. And it's amazing to me that they haven't been doing the kind of stuff they're doing before because they're wicked sinners apart from Jesus Christ. And so while we're busy doing everything else that we can and need to do in a free society, still the ultimate bottom line, people need to get saved and to get saved, they need to hear the gospel and to hear the gospel, they need to hear from us because we have that treasure in earthen vessels, amen?